The sermon text for tonight is found in John 7, 25 through 39. John 7, 25 through 39. If you don't have a Bible, if you look in the pew right in front of you, right underneath, there should be a pew Bible. You can use that, and it's on page 893 in that pew Bible. Again, it's John 7, 25 through 39. It's on page 893 in the Pew Bible. Look with me. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going To him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as of yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray. Father, my first prayer for those within the hearing of my voice is that they would be thirsty for Christ, that their souls would awaken, that you would carve away the calluses that may have grown over the taste buds of their spirits. And that you would make them sensitive to your greatness and your all-satisfying beauty. And then I pray for myself 
that I would faithfully portray you, Lord Jesus, in this text and what you were really saying and that this portrayal and that that thirst would meet and life would happen. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is in Jerusalem teaching a very divided crowd. Some wanted him arrested, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him. Why? Because they saw him as a pretender who could not possibly be the Messiah. Look at verse 27 to see how they were reasoning. We know where this man comes from. And when the Christ, the Messiah, appears, no one will know where he comes from. So there was a popular view among some that the Messiah would appear suddenly, out of nowhere, as it were. But here was Jesus. Everybody knows where Jesus is from. He's from Nazareth. And he doesn't look anything like a Messiah. And he makes no sudden appearance at all. He's just emerging like a a rabbi. So, no way. He's a pretender. Others thought he was the Messiah. Here's the way they reasoned. Look at verse 31. Yet many other people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So they are impressed with his miracles. Uh, Maybe the faith is real. Maybe it's not. Maybe they're just like the brothers back in verse 5 who were called unbelievers, though they were excited about his miracles as well. So the crowd is divided. The reason for this opposition um, becomes very intense because not merely did he appear to be a pretender, but he was saying things, not just about himself, which they didn't believe, but things about them which were very offensive. And they're offensive today, 2,000 years later. Let's read them. Verses 28 and 29. Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, and here I think he's speaking with very pointed irony, you know me, and you know where I am from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me to you, he who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Now, don't miss those words, him you do not know. The most religious, the most privileged, the most well-taught people in the world, without exaggeration, have the very oracles of God, the Jewish scriptures, Jesus looks them in the eye and he says, 
you don't know God. That's why they want to kill him. I know God. I am from God. God sent me. And you don't know him. And of course, therefore, you can't recognize me. I want to linger over this for just a moment because this is over and over and over said in the Gospel of John, which is why among liberals today, this is the most offensive, outrageous book in the Bible. Let me just read you five verses. John 5, 23. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. John 5, 42. I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. John 6, 45. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. John 8, 19. You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. John 8, 42. If God were your Father, you would love me. This is outrageous in a pluralistic world. If you want to help someone today know, say, a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Jewish friend, if you want to help someone today know if their claim to know God is true, show them Christ. Offer them Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, crucified for sin as a sacrifice from God and raised from the dead and reigning. Show them Christ. And if they receive him, they know God. And if they don't, they neither know him, honor him, love him, or have him as their father, or Jesus is a liar. This got him crucified, and it will make you very unpopular if you simply, calmly, humbly speak what Jesus spoke. You don't need to raise your voice. So the crowds wanted him dead and others didn't. The Pharisees got wind that there were positive responses happening and they took action quickly. Verse 32, the Pharisees 
heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. This is getting very intense. Now, we're not told until verse 45, which is next week's message, Lord willing, what happened when the officers came. But we are told what he said, verses 33 and 34, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. In other words, you may try to arrest me, but I will choose where I go, when I go, and who follows me. You can't take me early. You won't keep me here. When I choose to leave and when I go, you won't be able to follow me. Your plans are futile. I came to do my Father's will, and it will be done. Exactly when and how he intends for it to be done, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Now, in response to these words, they are absolutely clueless. Verse 36, what does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you'll not find me? So here we have the situation. That's all I've done so far is set up the situation. Here we have the situation. The crowds have been told they don't know God. The Pharisees have been told that they are powerless to arrest him before he wills to be arrested. Now what will he say? What will he do in this unbelievably loaded, dangerous situation? The Feast of Tabernacles is almost over. That's what brought him up to Jerusalem in the first place. He has one more day before this feast is over. What will he say? The Pharisees have sent officers to arrest him. Will they? Perhaps as he gets ready to speak, perhaps they're standing right there in front of him. I suspect they are. Let's go ahead and do next Sunday's sermon. Drop, drop down to verse 45. This is just too good to postpone. Verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said, Why didn't you bring him? And the officers answered, No one 
ever spoke like this man. So what did he say? As they were standing there under orders to arrest him and unable to do it. What did he say? That's what the rest of this message is about. So let's read it. Verses 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Last week, the amazing words that came out of Jesus' mouth in the temple had to do with how you could know if he was true or not. He who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. So it was a question of knowing. How can I be sure? How can I know that this is the man? This is the Messiah. This is, he's true. How can I know? If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching, this is verse 17, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. So last week the question was, is it true? How can we know? And this week, the question Jesus addresses in these final words at the feast are, why should you care even if it is true? There are a lot of things that are true that are just not important. If you believe them or don't believe them, it hardly changes anything in your life. That's not true this time. Jesus is answering, what difference would it make if you came to him? What difference would it make if you believed, if you received, if you drank? That's the question. He's He's not saying anymore, how can you know if this is true? He's saying, if it is, what difference would it make in your life? So you should ask, now 2,000 years later, this book is written that you might believe, you should ask, not only is he true, is he real, how can I know, but rather also Would I want him if he were true? What would it mean if I came to him the way Jesus says come? What would it be like? What would happen to me? What, would it be worth it? Would it cost me something? That's the question in verses 37 to 39. Now, A part of the answer, I want you to see this, a part of the answer of whether he's the kind of person you would want to come to if he's true is 
realizing to whom he is speaking these words. He is speaking them to his enemies. He is giving a totally open-ended invitation to everyone within the sound of his voice. And the only qualification that he puts on the words are, if anyone thirst. That's all. If anyone thirst, any Pharisee here who just sent to have me arrested, any chief priest in my audience, any officer trying to arrest me, any offended person whom I just told you do not know God, if anyone, anyone thirsts, come to me. The fact that he is speaking those words at this moment to these adversaries is part of what should make you want him. It's part of perhaps of what the soldier at the cross was moved to say, this man was surely the son of God because he prayed for his enemies. And maybe the soldiers who were there to arrest him, he's looking right in their eyes saying, soldier, if you're thirsty, why don't you come to me and drink? And they were undone, perhaps. I've been undone. Do you remember the time near the end of his life where Jesus looked out over Jerusalem and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. This is one of those times. Don't let that go by. He's looking out on adversaries and saying, if anyone's thirsty, come to me and drink. How often has he stretched out his hands to you and said that? To Jerusalem, he said, how often? How often? And, and there aren't many children in this room, and so I know that you've been alive for 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 80 years. And I'm asking you, how often? How often has Jesus spoken to you? from his book or a sermon or a radio and said, if you're thirsty, come. What would it mean for you if you came? Came again. Maybe you came. Maybe you came. And it's been 18 years since you ever drank. So what I want to do, as faithfully as I know how in the remaining time we have, is walk through these precious words to us and 
take five things that I see, or five pieces of the text, and, and open them for your enjoyment. And pray that thirst would be awakened and your soul would drink. So here are the five. Number one, what does it mean, thirst? Number two, what does coming to drink mean? Number three, what are the rivers that are flowing out of the heart? Number four, what's the reference to the Holy Spirit all about? And number five, the fact that it was prophesied in Scripture. Those are the five elements of the text, and we'll take them one at a time. Number one, thirst. Verse 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Seems to me that there are three wonderful things implied in the word thirst. Number one, the water is free. It's a gift. The only condition that's mentioned is need. There's no talk here about coming to work for him to get the water. The only talk is, are you thirsty? Second observation about thirst. The human soul has thirst. We know he's not talking about physical thirst here. We know that. That's clear. What he's saying is the soul has something like physical thirst. Let's call it thirst. When you go without water, your body gets thirsty. When you go without God, your soul gets thirsty. You were made to drink God. You were made for God. Your body was made to live on water. Your soul was made to live on God. This is the most important thing to know about yourself. Nothing about yourself is as important to know as that you have a soul and the soul was made to live on God. Nothing is more important. All theology, all study, all biblical learning, all preaching is designed to spread a satisfying banquet for the soul to eat with joy and to keep the poison out of the kitchen. The aim of cooking is eating. The aim of digging wells and clearing springs is drinking. Everything Jesus said, everything Jesus did was aimed at this, that you might drink and be satisfied forever. That's where it's all going. Everything is a means to that end. That you might drink of Christ. That you might feed on Christ. That your soul might live on him. Everything is a means 
to that. That's why he died. That's why pastors study. That's why churches are formed. That's why missions is in the world. Everything is aiming to awaken thirst for God and satisfy it with Jesus. The third observation in the word thirst is Jesus is what satisfies the soul. Or better to say, what Jesus offers in himself is satisfying to the soul. I still want you to miss this. You know, I'm a Christian hedonist, which means that virtually everything I think about and every sermon I give and every counseling session I have and every visitation to the hospital I make, I have one main goal. I want to awaken affections for God and satisfy them with God. That's, that's the way I see everything in the world. I don't mainly think about ideas, though I'm a really idea guy. Ideas are totally cooking, not eating. Ideas are totally about clearing springs away, digging wells, not drinking. I'm after drinking, not thinking. Thinking is a workhorse. Take me to the spring. I'm, I'm born to drink. I want to be happy forever, totally. Nothing small, big, deep, Long, strong, unshakable joy. That's what I want. The whole world wants it. They don't know. They're dribbling their their lives away on a thousand things that cannot satisfy. All I want to do is what Jesus is about right here. Come. You. So summarize this first point on thirst. The water is free. The soul has a thirst. Jesus aims to be the satisfaction for that thirst. Second, what does it mean, come to Jesus to drink? Verse 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So three observations on coming to Jesus to drink. Number one, Jesus is what we drink. He says, come to me and drink. Now, I'm going this direction rather than come to me and get from me drink. You could say that. That wouldn't be false. But I'm saying when he says, come to me and drink, he mainly means I'm the water. I say that because of chapter 6, verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He 
is the bread of life. He doesn't just give the bread of life. He is the living water. He doesn't just give the living water. Your soul was made for Jesus. You you may not know this. This is why you're so frustrated in life. You, You may not know this. There are many people who don't know why they exist. They're human, this awesome reality of being souls created in the image of God, and they've been taught in school they're just advanced animals. That is the most tragic thing in the world, to teach somebody created in the image of God with a living, eternal soul made to live on Christ, that they're just an animal. What a wicked thing to do. And so many people don't have a clue who they are, what a wonder they are, what they're made for. Why, why can't they sleep? Why are they so hungry for a hundred things that never satisfy? They don't know themselves. You were made for Jesus. Jesus is the drink. Second observation, the soul can drink. In this service, I say this looking into the camera, knowing that not every service did this. We sang, uh, How Great Thou Art, which has that line, and it then sings, My soul. And, and I stopped right there and said to Jesus, I'm just going to shut up with my mouth and sing like crazy. Just to see if it could be done. Then sings my soul. The soul can sing. The soul can drink. The soul can eat. You do it with your soul, not your mouth, not your throat. You do it spiritually. You were made to do this. You're not a mere animal. You were made for this. You come to Jesus and the soul, the body may not be moving a single muscle, neither the eyes, the cheeks, the mouth, the hands, and your soul at that very moment may be drinking deeply, eating deeply. My Christ my bread, my water. I'm saying it just so you know what's inside. You don't need to say it. You can just... Number three, third observation on coming and drinking. Coming and drinking are what it means to believe on Jesus. Verse 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, whoever believes in me. And I think the juxtaposition of whoever believes on me and coming and drinking means that believing is coming and drinking, and coming and drinking is believing. And again, I feel supported in that by verse 35 of chapter 6. Listen carefully. 
I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, and this is not muscular or locational or geographic. Who, this is spiritual. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes, notice the parallelism, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So here's the point. Believing is a spiritual coming to Christ for the satisfaction of the soul. That's my definition of believing. So you may, at least if you want to follow what we think around here, you may be done forever that saving faith is a decision alone to believe facts about Jesus. It's not. Faith is a coming of the soul to a fountain to be satisfied with Jesus above all things. That's what faith is. That's the third observation. So, let me sum this second point up. Jesus is the water that we need. The soul does the drinking. And that's what believing is. Third, the rivers flow from the soul. Verse 38, what are these rivers? Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Literally, it's out of his belly. Could be belly, could be heart, could be spirit, could be soul. It means you're more than your body, way more, decisively more. You are more than your body. Out of that inner you, that real you, flow rivers of living water when you come and believe and drink Jesus. So what does it mean? It means that when you come to Jesus to drink, you don't just get a single drink. You get a spring. When you come to Jesus to drink, you don't just get a, a single satisfying drink. You get a fountain. When you come to Jesus to drink, you don't just get a single drink. You get a well springing up to eternal life. You get Jesus. Rivers of water flow from your soul because the river maker is in your soul. Every river that needs to flow for the, the joy of your soul, he will cause to flow. You will never, ever have to look anywhere else. The rivers are as many as the soul needs that you have. Your home, he's not a stepping stone. He's not a means to anything. 
He's the end. When you have him, you don't just have a drink. You have a river maker. And rivers will flow. Fourth observation about the text, namely the spirit. Verse 39. Now, this he said about the spirit, who, uh, whom those who re- believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. There was an experience of the Spirit that could not yet be enjoyed by his disciples until Jesus had died for their sins been raised triumphant over death and ascended to the right hand of the Father in glory. What was that experience that they could not have yet and we all have? It was and is the experience of fellowship with the spirit of the risen and glorified Christ. Say it again. It was the experience of fellowship, communion with the risen and glorified Christ. That they could not know. He had not yet poured out that spirit, for he was not yet risen and was not yet glorified. This is what the Father gives to everyone who believes, just as Jesus says here, to everyone who believes. Let me me help you with this just a minute. Try anyway. Jesus will say in chapter 14 that he's going to ask the Father to send the Spirit. And And he speaks of the Spirit in such a way that we realize he's really talking about himself coming by the Spirit, having been raised and glorified. So let me read you those key verses from chapter 14. This is chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. The him there, I think, is is Jesus and the spirit. It's, It's the way John writes. He writes with his double intentions. And then here it comes clear at the end of verse 17. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Whoa. Whoa. Meaning, you're destined to have the Spirit, but it, it's me. And it's me risen. It's me glorified. It's me pouring out myself. 
What God gives you when you believe is Christ by the Spirit. His body, the incarnate God-man, is in heaven. He's not in this room. You'd see him if he were in this room. You could put your hand in his side. He's not here, but Jesus is here. By his Spirit. Here's the way the Apostle Paul put it, Romans 8, 9. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. You have him or you're not a Christian. The Spirit of Christ, the risen, glorified Christ is in you or you're not a believer. The mark of a born-again believer is Christ is in you by his Spirit. The God-man is not in you. He's in heaven. His body is in heaven. But his Spirit, which is himself, is poured out. And that Spirit is the Spirit of God. There are not two spirits. Let's read verses 9, 10, and 11 of Romans 8, and you'll see it all. So, when we come to Jesus to drink, now, this side of the resurrection, there's no man to come to. There in the temple, they might have approached him and fallen down and taken his feet and said, yes, yes, I want you. And I think he would have blessed them, just blessed them. And today, there's nobody to grab. Where do you go with your body? You don't go anywhere, which is why we don't have a geographic center for Christianity and why we don't call this a temple. You are the temple. He's there. He's as close as your thirst. Lastly, number five, the witness of Scripture to all of this. A sermon in itself, but I'll give it two minutes. Verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. As the Scripture has said, as the Scripture has said, oh my, I read a lot on this, so one sentence feels very inadequate. There are so many Old Testament passages that point to this reality, many. My guess is Jesus has the whole shebang in mind. But I'll give you one. Isaiah 58, 11. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. But let me end like this. 
when it says, as the scriptures say, I think the main thing we should feel is this. God planned this for you. Drawing attention in 30 A.D. to something in 700 B.C. means God had it in mind a long time ago. That's the point. God had you in mind a long time ago. God had this moment in the temple and this moment in this pulpit in mind a long time God planned that you would have a soul. God planned that the Son of God would come into the world to be water. And God planned that your soul would be awakened by this sermon. Or not. So, according to God's age-old intention, according to the words of Jesus speaking to his enemies, and according to the offer that he makes to one condition alone, thirst, I say to you, if anyone in this room is thirsty, and I mean a deep soul for something perhaps you know not what. If anyone in this room is thirsty, let him come to Jesus and drink. Let's pray. Amen, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for planning this for us. I speak on behalf of hundreds when I say, I love you, Jesus. You are my water, my bread, my life, my satisfaction, which I fully expect to be so increasingly forever with death as no interruption whatsoever. Because my soul is immortal and you are in it. What a wonder. Awaken, O oh God, awaken your people. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.